Welcome to Casting Light, the entertainment lighting podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We tweet at Podcasting Light. And you can find us on Facebook at Casting Light. My co-host today is Robert Siniskalki. RJ, where can people find you online? Uh, my uh, LinkedIn site. Uh, they can just search uh, Robert Siniskalki. Got most of my bio um, up on there. That's pretty much it. Today on the podcast, our guest is Chris McMean from Christie Lights. He's been handling lighting equipment rentals for over 15 years and has helped some of the biggest names in lighting rentals and sales reach their goals for growth and service. Thanks so much for joining us, Chris. My pleasure. Now, you know, I just want to remind you what Casting Light focuses on are lighting designers, specifically uh-huh. lighting designers who cross paths over many different kinds of the, over many different parts of the business, uh, theater, television, film, etc. Uh, we also focus on the people that make designs happen, uh, programmers, lighting directors, production electricians, head electricians. Mm-hmm. And finally, we focus on alternate professions for people that want to do lighting, they want to be in lighting, but they, maybe they have something else to offer, maybe they have additional skill set, maybe they, maybe they discover that being in the designer's chair isn't for them. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely fell into where I am, so, I, you know, I can see... You know, uh, at one point I was doing some programming and a little designing and production electrician, and then I kind of fell into the rental side. Well, when was that? When, what were you doing, and how did you, how did you end up? Um, well, what was your education? Uh, well, actually, uh, my degree's in biology. <laughs> so I have a major in biology and a minor in theater with a pre-med background. Okay. So after that's I le- uh, you know I, I've heard more circuitous <laughs> routes to get to here from from I know it's definitely a sort of a, a strange route to take originally but but my minor was theater and pretty much at the college I went to Manhattanville I pretty much technically ran the uh, theater department with a guy named Joe Forehand okay and uh, Joe was the sort of the faculty guy and uh, I uh, did all the lighting for all the senior projects. I did carpentry for all the senior projects, so and, and all their regular theater shows as well. So I was doing a good deal of that. So I would sort of, you know, I'd go work on the theater show when it was done. I'd go upstairs and I'd work in the bio lab, and uh, it was it, it was fun. It's a little interesting that uh, people that went to official design programs got less experience lighting shows than you did, right? At Manhattanville, <laughs> right? Where I was definitely more hands-on and doing a lot more shows because, you know, there was just like two of us there. So I did that, and after college, you know, I, you know, I always wanted to be a doctor, and I figured, you know, being a doctor would sort of be the easy street and the you know easy career to go go down. You know, very exciting, good pay. You know, yeah, totally easy. You know, spend what eight years in school? Yeah, <laughs> but school's and fun. then don't sleep for ten years. <laughs> School's fun with with being in a small program and, and, and all those those roles right there in, in terms of with your minor. Yeah. So, um, so I did that and I, I graduated and I figured I you know I, you know the theater was kind of always a hobby for me. Um, even though I gr- I grew up in theater, my mother was a Broadway producer uh, with Warner Brothers. She produced Crimes of the Heart on Broadway. Uh, she was general manager of the Big Apple Circus, and I toured with the Big Apple Circus when I was 14 as a stagehand. So I, I had a lot of history in sort of the, the theater world, but I always saw that my mother was struggling. So financially, it was, you know, 
uh, we weren't very well off, so I figured I would do something that was more financially rewarding, even though I didn't realize how much the theater was in my blood. So I graduated. I was doing a medical research on the sleep heart help study, which was actually the largest sleep study done in the United States and actually linked heart disease and sleep disorders. So I was doing that, and then on the side I would go do gigs, and I would work in the theaters here and there, and, you know, I'd get my creative on, and, and I really enjoyed that. And then uh, High Output offered me a position in 1997, and my stepfather was running the, uh, the division up there, and he said, oh, come work for us for one summer, please, please, please. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure, and he's like, oh, come on. He said, if, if you don't like it one summer, you go back, you know, go back to the medical profession. So I said, okay. My girlfriend and my son at the time, uh, we moved up to Boston, and I started working for High Output. Um, How many I, years after after school was that? That was uh, two years. Okay. Um, so we moved to Boston, and I started in the shop. But I also drove trucks, and I also uh, was an electrician, and, you know, I helped, uh, I did some local design work. Um, so sort of a little bit of everything, jack-of-all-trades. It was a great time. You know, I, I really liked working in the lighting business. However, they realized I had a very good uh, client sales ability. So they, now, now, how did they discover that? Or how did you discover that? Um, I think it was just more that I was a people person. So they'd send me out on job sites, and I'd be chatting with the client and setting up their show and working with them. And then all of a sudden, the client only wanted to talk to me. They're like, we just we want to talk to Chris directly. Uh, because when we speak to you guys and then speak to Chris, it, it doesn't go as well. So let's just speak to Chris directly. So I started managing clients, and it was great. You know, we uh, uh, transitioned me into to an office position. I still worked on gigs on the weekend. I did a lot of work at the Huntington Theater Company. I did work at American Repertory Theater. I really still enjoyed getting my hands dirty. Then I would also do production jobs for them. I would work at the Fleet Center with Local 11 up there. And so I was doing both the office work and the freelance work. So this was a really, really organic transition. Correct. Correct. It was following the flow of sort of what was happening. So uh, we grew high output very quickly. Um, it was well, let's talk a little bit about high output and what it is, what it was then and what it is now. Right. So high output was a uh, was originally a film lighting shop, film rental lighting shop. And they strictly did film. Um, my stepfather rented some space from them and started a theatrical lighting company. He had been in the business many years before. Uh, Tom Field uh, from a company called TFA, which was the largest lighting company in the country in the 70s, early 70s. He had sold that, left the business, and then was deciding to get back into it. Started the small rental shop in Boston, was renting some space from High Output, who quickly decided that they really did want a theatrical arm because a lot of the film stuff was starting to use theatrical gear. So they purchased his little startup, 
and employed him to run it. Yeah, it's interesting that now it's normal to walk into a television studio and see Source 4s, right. Source 4 pars. Um, but where historically it was very it was a very hard line like you know the Ari Fresnels never touched the Source 4 Lecos or the 360 uh, back then it was 360Qs, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and of course there were uh, you know a lot of really smart lighting designers who would go and say, well, this film equipment does the exact thing I want it to. I'm right. going to go use it in theater. But it just wasn't normal. It wasn't, you know, you just, it, just, yeah. it just wasn't what you did. Yeah, it was definitely a sort of uh, interesting transition. And now I think it's not fully evolved, but the cross is definitely hugely different. For the first time, at least that I can remember, uh, we are now using auras to light green screens, which was like unthinkable, almost <laughs> unthinkable. You know, we did we did a shootout with LED moving lights versus fluorescent old style film fixtures to light a green screen on a movie set, which will of course later be taken out and they'll put in uh, whatever background that they want to put in. Um, historically the only product that's been able to give them the super soft, even wash that they were looking for was uh, these fluorescent fixtures. So the fact that it has now evolved that an LED moving light can do the same effect for them and give them a whole bunch of other effects that they can use as well was very exciting to them. So so high so high output was right at right at the cusp of this. It was right at change. the beginning. Yeah, it was right at the beginning, and so they started the theater department, and the theater department quickly outgrew. Well, in, in pace, it outgrew the film lighting department. But I mean, the film lighting department was always sort of the big brother, and the theatrical lighting department was always kind of the little brother. You know, um, my stepfather left the company in two thousand one to go. Uh, pursue some other stuff and I took over at that point running the theatrical division I was there through 2005 and my from 1997 to 2005 that was really sort of the progression of uh, the growth of the the theatrical division we went from a very small operation to a to a very large operation we ended up moving into a 90,000 square foot warehouse and just south of Boston. Now, officially, what was your title at that point? Uh, I was uh, director of theater and special events. And so I, I imagine that even though you came from a theater background, in you know you were you were doing this and stuff in college, you were lighting shows, you were doing carpentry on shows, and then you transitioned into uh, doing shows with high output and doing direct client relations. There have to have been things that you didn't learn in school that you had to learn very quickly. And I wonder what those things were. Programming was a huge piece. I mean, we had a microvision at the college where I had worked, and and we programmed lighting on that. Um, But I think that the the whole hog sort of evolved out during that era, and I was hugely interested in programming. It was very exciting to me. So I learned the whole hog, too. And were you doing shows on, on that for high output? Well, not just for high output, but anybody who needed somebody to do a show. I oh, okay. worked on a couple of small film sets. And, uh, you know, we take uh, we were a Series 300 dealer. We were one of the first Series 300 dealers, so we'd take some Fairlights. 
and we'd take a whole hog too, and we'd go make the room look pretty. Um, can, can, can we stop there for just a second? And yeah. tell me just tell me a little bit about that because you know I wasn't in the business at the time, and so I sort of heard all of that sort of third hand. The Series 300 system was the third generation of Verilite equipment, right. and uh, I was under the impression that Verilite created that equipment not to not not to be sold out to uh, end users, but to do their own shows with. But high on, but high output was a dealer. Correct. The the way the Series 300 dealership worked was uh, you purchased uh, the, those companies purchased a lease, so they would buy the gear for. Uh, I think it was like for 20 years or whatever. And eventually what happened is they all ended up just, you know, at the end of the lease they just gave you the gear. Um, but it wasn't even – that, that wasn't even 20 years. It was, you know, we signed the lease for 20 years at like a dollar a year. And then, and we, you know, we paid a large amount up front. And that's pretty much how the, how the Series 300 dealership worked. And we weren't the only one. There were, you know, there were Series 300 dealerships all around the country. And Verilite did that so they could uh, cover more area where they weren't willing to open up offices. So they wanted an office in Boston to service things that were going in Boston. They're, they weren't going to open a VLPS office in Boston. And VLPS is Verilite Production Services. Right. So they found what they figured were the best dealers in the area, and they brought them all in. And, I mean, they basically sold us each a package of, you know, whatever we were looking for, even though it was set up as a lease. I see. <laughs> oh, it so. makes sense. You know, I, it's just something that I never quite got the whole story on. Right. And I imagine I'm not the only person. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of that stuff is sort of kept hush-hush, you know. Oh, I imagine now this all point, that stuff's it's, gone. It's, a, <laughs> so it's all it's all uh, theatrical history at this point. You know, well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that series because I mean, if you turn on a, a, an award show, a television show today, you might still see yeah, there are like series 200 equipment on yep. in use, and uh, it, it seems for a little while we lost the the idea that people sometimes want small light fixtures. Right. That, you know, that they don't all have to weigh 75, 100 pounds. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you, earlier you mentioned auras, and I think that's a good example of, you know, it's a fixture that is bright enough to be to be used for a lot of different things, but it weighs, what, 10 pounds? Uh, yeah, they're, they're very light. I, I think they're a little closer to 20 pounds, but like 12, maybe 12 or 14 pounds. You could pick them up with one hand, though. <laughs> You know, it's that type of fixture which you could just, you know, one guy could hang one on the side of a tower and just toss it up. And it's interesting how that's evolved, though, too, because, you know, people don't order these LED moving lights or auras or, you know, in, in twos or threes. You know, people used to order two or three wash lights. You know, they order them in packs of, you know, 12 or 24, you know. They just, there's so many more of them, you know, now that they're smaller. You know, it's definitely interesting. I think our whole Series 300 wash package was like 18 VL5s. You know, that was our whole Series 300 wash package. Nowadays, that wouldn't do one show. (laughs) You know, it's, it's just grown, you know, so much. And uh, which I think, you know, I mean, from from my career sp- perspective, that's a great, you know, progression. 
you know, I, I and you know, we were very uh, we were very excited when you know uh, Verilite came to us and you know wanted us to open up there, and uh, I think it was definitely uh, you know it was the standard. You know, the Series three hundred was if you had that product, you were like the go-to shop when somebody was coming out of New York and they wanted a real rig, they would call us. And then we would supplement the package through VLPS in New York, and we got special pricing. And, and it, I think it was a it was a it was a great relationship tool um, that many of the manufacturers really wouldn't even explore nowadays. You know, back then we had more limited resources, so it was like, well, who do we team up with? Well, and they weren't just a manufacturer; they were also doing their own shows right. at VLPS. So I, I imagine they had a very different concept. Yeah, and their view of themselves wasn't that they were a manufacturer. Their view of themselves was, you know, we do gigs, and I think, uh, you know, I don't think any current manufacturer necessarily has that viewpoint, except maybe PRG with you know the, their new fixtures, where their you know their viewpoint is a little bit is we're not manufacturing, quote unquote, we're doing gigs with the gear that we're going to we're going to build to do gigs better than other people do gigs so but so you learned to program yep so to go out on those jobs and with that with that equipment with the hogs yep and uh but it quickly uh the office life was starting to eclipse the the production life and at some point i had to make a decision was i going to become you know, a full-time production guy, or was I going to stay in the office? And the pressure from my bosses was, we need you in the office. And uh, what was that transition like? I just eventually had enough clients that I didn't have time to get out and do gigs anymore. So I was spending time on the phone. I mean, I would still show up to many gigs, but I was there for the initial load-in piece. I wasn't going to be able to stay for the whole time. Because then there was another gig to get to and another gig to get to. And then at a high output, we started doing off-Broadway stuff in New York. Because, you know, my love of theater still is always present in my life. So I keep getting drawn back to the theater. So I would go find these off-Broadway projects, get some lights on them, and come down to New York and, and, and work on those projects. And I think that, that that was a very exciting time at high output where we were doing that. Um, and then we teamed up with uh, Big Apple Lights. And there was an alliance there for a while, which was great. I mean, we, we definitely did some good stuff together. Um, so you were providing the more high-tech high equipment correct. to Big Apple Lights, right. which was providing the iron, steel, and conventionals? Correct. That's, that's the way most of it worked. When somebody wanted sort of a heavier system, we would supplement their system. And... Uh, so, you know, that was going that was going pretty good. We 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 had a very solid relationship and basically we were, you know, giving them dimmers, we were giving them moving lights when they needed it, stuff like that. And cuz the broad, the off-Broadway shows were starting to use, you know, more complex dimming. It was going from, you know, leprechaun small, you know, tree style dimmer packs to you know, they wanted full sensor, you know, 24 packs with the uh, CEMs. The off-Broadway designers were looking at Broadway and saying, we need to step our game up to, you know, to, to make our, our, our product uh, comparable. And audiences have now grown <laughs> to expect Correct. certain Correct. things. And 
yes. uh, these things can help us right. provide those things. You know, it was an interesting time at Big Apple Lights. I remember, um, you know, I thought they were going to go in a very different direction than the one they went uh, because, you know. <laughs> Me I, too. <laughs> I, I remember going to um, uh, WYSIWYG training mm-hmm. there, uh, Whole Hog 3 training mm-hmm. there, and uh, they, they, you know, they, they seemed sort of ready to become a high-tech vendor. Yeah. And uh, they were talking about offering a computer lab with plotters uh, yeah. and Vectorworks machines and AutoCAD machines, and uh, I imagine that you know now that I hear this, I imagine that high, high up it was a big part of that push. Yes, I, I think that was definitely part of the relationship and the push, and 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 I think we did some great projects together over like a, it was like a two year period, and then at one point they decided they wanted out, so they you know so we uh, you know we we went our separate ways. I immediately went back and started doing some, you know, some off-Broadway theater again. And then in 2005, um, I got a call. Uh, one of my clients in New York was uh, Sharf Weisberg Lighting. And, which is now World Stage. Which is now World Stage. And they, you know, said to me, you love New York, Chris. You're from New York. You know, I'm born and raised here. They're like... Are you ever moving back here? <laughs> and I was like, yes, my goal is eventually to move back to New York. And uh, so we, you know, we somewhat hatched a plan for me to move back to New York and work with them. So we we set it up, and I moved to New York, and uh, we uh, I started in a small shop in Long Island City. They had already moved out of their Manhattan location. We had done some back, and we would do regular business with them where I would send down a tractor-trailer load of gear for Fashion Week, and they could pick and choose what they wanted out of it, and I'd just charge them for... i just charge it as he uses basis. And uh, they love that, so we do that every year. And then I really think that the... You know, they wanted to really grow Scharf Weisberg into a big light, uh, theatrical lighting company. And uh, I think Peter Scharf was a big part of that. So I came down and I met with them and we talked and I ended up moving down and working for them. And uh, I imagine this time you didn't have to start driving trucks. When you no, I didn't have to start driving trucks again. And they don't let me touch consoles very much anymore either. <laughs> Even though I like to, you know, <laughs> get up there and press the button a couple times. But... Uh, you know, they, they had a vision, and uh, I fit into that vision, and I think we did some really great stuff together. Uh, we did, and we did a lot of off-Broadway, which I love, and we did some Broadway, which I was very, it was my first time working on Broadway, which was very exciting. What was that show? Uh, the first show, actually, the first show was a joint venture with both Sharf Weisberg and High Output, and that was Good Vibrations. Oh, okay. Who was the lighting designer? Brian McDevitt. Okay. And Jason Lyons. I went to I went to college with Jason Lyons. He's a, he's a good guy. I'm still friends with him. He's uh, fabulous. He's a fabulous designer. I know that. But so is Brian. Yep. So yeah, that was sort of the first you know Broadway joint venture uh, uh, project that I got to work on. I was very excited about that. I have to say that that was definitely a high point for me. Um, one was- of my you know one of my Loves of theater, of course, goes right to Broadway, and uh, and then we also did uh, 
What's the other show we did? Um, Dame Edna. What's the other show we did? And now, how, so, now, how was that different from doing the off-Broadway stuff? Well, one, I was much more excited about it. <laughs> uh, I definitely think that, uh, for me, I think the off-Broadway stuff uh, was on a smaller scale. So just the Broadway stuff really stepped up the scale and stepped up the the level of refinement that they were doing on it. You know, on Off-Broadway, we don't put all new lamps in every fixture when they go into a theater. When we're working on Broadway, every single light's getting a, a brand new lamp. Um, well, it's especially critical with moving lights. Yep. Very critical with moving lights. And, and I think it also, I, you know, but it's, it's that way with everything. You know, whenever I think, you know, Broadway, I think of, you know, better gear... I think of, you know, more time in the theater where they're going to spend time refining the project. I think of a, a much more finished product, that they spend a lot more time refining the product before it gets there. And uh, and technically, much more advanced. So, you know, in Good Vibrations, we had a huge... Uh, Verilite 3000 rig, which was a sort was the top moving light at the time, and uh, it was you know it was definitely uh, very exciting. Of course, the show only lasted like I think two months, and then it closed. <laughs> but uh, these things happen. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know, I, to me, it was it, it was a great first experience, and I think that. Uh, was there anything that you learned from your mother that helped you once you were doing uh, shows at that level? I think definitely hanging out in the theater and being comfortable in the theater environment was, was a huge portion of it. I used to sit as a kid and, in the house at uh, Crimes of the Heart and basically watch them rehearse all day long. You know, it was you know the just the comfort of being in the theater environment. I think was, you know, when I walk into a theater, I know where the backstage door is. I know where the side doors are. I know not to walk under, you know, things getting lowered in, and I know how to talk to people who are doing theater. You know, when not to talk, <laughs> I think is almost more important than, you know, what you say. And I think that. Uh, you know, so it was definitely, I think, helpful for me growing up in, in, in the theater world to, to sort of deal with a, a theater, you know, lighting designer and, and everything else. That totally makes sense. Uh, so you're at Scharf. So I was at Scharf, and uh, we grew the company quite a lot. We, uh, we landed the VMAs, which was a very huge project, and I think uh, that was super exciting for us. That was probably the largest project of that size that we had done. Uh, we landed the Rachel Ray show, which was very exciting. And Two very different projects, but yeah, both di- very, very... Uh, uh, both television, but one talk show and one award show. We definitely... We, 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 we did a lot of award show stuff at Sharf for a while. You know, that was definitely a sort of like a niche we found, you know, fell into and not west coast you know this is all just east coast stuff um we did the bet awards we did you know vmas we did there there were a bunch of them 
Now, the relationship between the production and a lighting shop on a theatrical or a legitimate theatrical is very different from that on an award show or a one-off. Can you you tell us a little little bit about that difference, uh, especially from your side? I mean, there there is a very... Yeah, there's... uh, they're very different projects, you know. When you're doing an award show, there is a extreme redundancy that goes on because it's a live award show. There's no way for them to, you know, reshoot the middle of that. Where in like a talk show situation, um, similar now, but at the beginning of talk shows, when we first started doing Rachel Ray, I think they were. Well, I mean, they were also less using less high-tech stuff. But it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, they, they were right at that point when Rachel Ray's show first came out, they definitely evolved. They were evolving talk shows into using moving light packages, where in the past it had just been the talk shows were just huge amounts of, you know, Fresnels. Um so, but the award show are much more technically at a te- more technical level. They're, they're they're just using huge numbers of moving lights to light everything and every time on camera to have as many points as they can uh, that can change and do different things. And so, a ton of that is just the reverse shot, right? A ton of it is is just the reverse shot. It's just lots of lights all over the place that they can, whatever can they want to be able to hit a star wherever they are on stage and behind them see some twinkling, you know, lights. <laughs> and uh, so that that quickly adds up. The larger the venue, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. You know, while on a talk show or something like that, you're going to have a very sort of small set venue. Generally, the whole area is lit with a wash, and then the moving lights are used just for, you know, a few specials. And the intensity, the the stress level in the talk show is much lower than the stress level in the award show. So the talk show, they're just, they're moving ahead very slowly, paced, and they're like, oh, we need three more of those. Oh, we need two more of those. You know, on the on the award show, it's like, oh my god! Right now, we need five more, or ten more, or twenty more, or you know, we just plug something in wrong and blew up twenty of the moving lights, and we need twenty of them down here in ten minutes. You know, the the uh, we did the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The fact that we were in Long Island City and were able to get to the uh, Astoria Hotel where they did the event in. 15 minutes less than the competition was huge to them because when they added stuff very last minute, we could get it to them that much quicker. Of course, the load in there is just such a nightmare that it took two <laughs> hours to get it upstairs, but that's beside the point. Right, right. Well, that and, and, and you know, but the, the stress for those shows, too, it starts at uh, the onset of the stars being on stage. You know, once those rock and roll stars are there on stage, everybody gets real stressed out. And, I mean, using the word stressed out, I'd really probably like to replace stressed out with uh, strongly motivated to get things done. (laughs) So, anyway, so I was there at Sharf. We did 
some really great stuff. We're growing the company at a huge rate. And then we merged with a company out in California. And I think that it was a video company. And we talked a little bit about starting another lighting company on the West Coast. But I think their vision really was more video-based. And they really wanted to focus more on video. So I moved on to uh, high-end systems, Barco, for a little while. At the time, were they already Barco high-end? Uh, they were already Barco high-end. And they had, they had been bought, I think, uh, two years ago or three years ago by, by Barco. It was definitely interesting. For me, it was a bit of like taking a class in manufacturing. Like I got to see sort of how things were made how the moving lights we were using were being manufactured, how the glass was being manufactured. So, you know, the giant vacuum chambers they used, they used to make the dichroics. Uh, that was definitely hugely interesting to me. So, so Hyann had all of that in-house? Correct, correct. Hyann's actually the largest uh, glass manufacturer in the country. Uh, not good, they actually, sorry, don't make the glass, they make the dichroics. So they're the ones putting the color on the glass. And... You know, I had no idea that I did that before I got there. It's a huge piece of their business. Um, it's sort of a very interesting piece of their business. And I got to see how they did a lot of things, how they made a lot of things, how they interfaced with the dealers. I found very interesting. Uh, well, let's talk about that. I mean, I don't know a ton about how manufacturers interface with dealers or what a dealer ne- or how a dealer network works. Can you can you shed some light on that? I think the way the dealer net it's evolved quite a bit. Uh, when I first started in the business, uh, you know, the manufacturers would come and they would open dealers in each region, and the dealers had certain quotas that they had to hit. You know, generally you were a dealer for one manufacturer in a group, so like you sold one group of dimming. You sold one moving light manufacturer, and I think that's changed as we've moved on. Uh, as we've moved forward in the business, the dealers are selling more manufacturers, and there, you know, there was an initial buy-in that you had to do to, you know, to to come to the party to work with a manufacturer. You had to lay down a bunch of money to show that you were serious about selling the product. Um, I think a lot of that has faded away a bit because there's many more manufacturers than there used to be who are all playing in the same realm. So as the competition got fiercer, the requirement to be a dealer dropped, you know, because the dealers were like, well, yes, I could spec your product, but, you know, I'm going to work with my client to spec another product. And they're like, whoa, 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 don't get our product off the, you know, we'll sell it to you, sorry. I think that that was uh, interesting to sort of see that evolve because it was, I mean, it was very serious when we, you know, when I was at High Alpha and we signed up with Verilite, it was very specific that we weren't going to carry other moving lights, that we, you know, that the, we were Verilite branded and everything we did was Verilite branded. And we took that, you know, very seriously. And uh, nowadays, you know, most shops have, you know, three or four manufacturers in there of, you know, very similar products. 
and I think... Uh, well, but at least for the majors, there's still a requirement that you'd be able to serve, that you'd be able to provide support and service. Correct. That you'd be able to provide all, all of that in-house, that yeah. none of that, you, you don't have to farm any of that out. You can you can handle tech support for the console that you sell, that the console that you rent, the fixture that you sell, the fixture that you rent. Well, I've definitely seen a lot of that get pushed back on some of the manufacturers, the actual equipment support to be pushed back. You know, I remember at one point there was a high-end office in New York. There was a Martin office in New York. There was a ETC office in New York, and and those were the those were the players on Broadway. You know, and the manufacturers were all very serious about support, and they, you know, and they really supported the product when it was here in New York. Um, but if you went to, you know, Iowa or something. You know, you had to try to find a, a dealer who, who who would support it. You know, there was no manufacturer support there. So I, I definitely think that the, the involvement in New York, all those places have closed. So they've, you know, some of that has been pushed back onto the dealers, you know, that they need to support uh, the gear because, you know, High End doesn't have an office here in New York, you know. Martin doesn't have an office here in New York. Well, and the ones that remain are well aware of that. It, it should be at least partially the dealer's responsibility. Correct. That, you know, they're there for other reasons. They're not there for things that uh, the, that the dealer really should be doing. Right. Right. I think that they and, – and, and I think to me that's a big relationship piece too, you know, is I think that um, – I mean, clients should feel good with their dealer is going to support them, you know, and I, I – and that to me is, you know, support has always been critical. You know, when, when I started in the business, you know, you didn't let your clients down. You know, that was a big piece of of what we were doing is was supporting our clients to the fullest end of what we could do. And, uh, you know, I've tried to bring that to everywhere that I've been is definitely is is your 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 success is based on your client's success. And... You know, sometimes I would hear people at unnamed places say things like, oh, well, they didn't get us the correct list. I'm like, well, you know what? We need them to succeed, you know, that, that that's important. You know, we need the clients to succeed because if they're not successful, it, it reflects on us as a shop, you know. And I think that, uh, you know, that's definitely something. So anyway, back to the manufacturer piece. Yes. The, the things I learned there were sort of that interface between the dealers, the sort of how things were made and how the process, you know, I thought it would be, I'd say, more organized between the process of making a new moving light to interface with the end clientele. Like, what did the designers want versus what the manufacturers were manufacturing? And I really... At my time at High End, I tried to spend my time uh, increasing that communication between the dealers, uh, sorry, the designers and the manufacturer, because I really feel there's a disconnect. Uh, I mean, I think the dealers were really listening. There would be shutters in every moving profile moving light made. You know, it wouldn't just be an option. Because I would hear it again and again, you know. You know, does this light have shutters? You know, what, what is the beam control? And uh, I really tried to push that at high end. And, you know, I was I was only there for eight months before I was like, 
I don't know that I'm a manufacturing guy. <laughs> this is this is not necessarily for me. Because you were dealing with a whole whole different group of people at that point. You know, right. You, you were dealing with people like you. Right. I was dealing with people like me, and I was trying to undo a lot of history that had happened as well. You know, I think, you know, there wasn't necessary. you know, it's, it, it, it's hard to go back to somebody who feels like they weren't supported and say to them, hey, we're going to support you moving on. And, uh, you know, and I think getting New York up and running was also a big piece of what I wanted to do. And when I didn't see that developing, I knew that, you know, they, they weren't serious about it, you know, that they weren't serious about getting New York in a place where we had a demo room or we had a service center where we were doing training on weekends. You know, I think that that, that to me is a big piece is like, well, how many, how many free trainings are we doing for the, you know, all the freelancers in New York who want to learn your console? You know, what are we, what are we doing to support the end users? What are we doing to support the designers? You know, I think ETC does some amazing stuff where they sort of link the designers up, you know, with the the programmers. And, and I mean, the e, the evolving of the EOS, you know, all of a sudden it went from no EOSs on Broadway shows quickly to, like, two years later, every Broadway show has an EOS. <laughs> you know, it's like... It's, it's a good point. It's, you know, if you can get... Everybody, you know, if you can reach out to everybody, it's you know, if you can convince designers that this thing that that you make works and works for how they work, and then you listen right. to them, that's great. But then, if you can reach, also reach out to their programmers, right. reach out to their production <laughs> electricians, and then and now producers are getting it from both sides. Well, right. not only does the designer want it, the right. designer's whole team is already passionate about this product, right? And knows how to use it, and knows all the features, and you know. The training piece to me is critical. Is you need to train all the people so they feel comfortable, right? You know, they're saying to the designer, "Oh yeah, spec that product. We love it. I can put it together in five minutes, and it does. You know, it networks easy. You know, picking master slave is easy. All these features that are in it that are easy for the production electrician to use. That to me is a huge piece." So, and a rent, an opportunity to start a new rental shop uh, was very exciting to me. And that opportunity came up. So, how did that, so how did you hear about this? Or how did that well, connection happen? The connection was already there. Um, Christy Lights and, and Sharf had done a, a large amount of business together. We had set up, uh, pa- you know, we, we had set up packages to... Um, you know, through Christie Lights to rent to clients. So I was already dealing with Christie Lights on a regular basis. And Christie Lights is, was uh, originated in Canada, right? Yeah, yeah. The origin of Christie Lights is uh, was originally in Toronto, and they grew out from there. Huntley, it, it, it's still a you know an owned company. You know the. There's an owner that you can speak to, which to me was, is a huge piece. You know, it's, it's after having thing. worked in the corporate climate, where you know that there isn't an owner you can pick up the phone and talk to, I think it was good for me to you know go back to where I can go into the owner's office, close the door, and say, "Well, okay, these are the problems. How are we going to address them together?" 
and I think, uh, you know, uh, I realized, too, that I was much more of a rental guy than a manufacturing guy. And I think that, that was a uh, uh, a good realization for myself. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a huge opportunity that I just I couldn't walk away from. You know, the ability to, to start a new shop here in New York and to, um, you know, do the things that I like doing. You know, which did, they bring, and, did they bring you on with that in mind? Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah. I mean, the agreement was, was 100% was uh, we'll have a fully operating shop within a year of hiring you. And they did it. They pulled it off. Actually, we opened uh, within eight months. So um, well, can we've we already outgrown the shop. Well, can we talk about that process? Can we talk about what you had to do to put that in place and make that happen? Um, really what I had to put in place was, was the clients. You know, I, I had to bring the clientele to the system. You know, I had to bring the clientele in. And, you know, we, uh, we at Christie Lights have different connectors. We have, you know, some different systems that work very well. But, again, people aren't used to it. So, to me, again, it's about the same thing as I was talking about before. Training the clients, supporting the clients, telling the clients, you, you know, not telling the clients you're not going to let them down, but showing them you're not going to let them down. Being there for them, being present, being there when they call on the phone and say, hey, I have a rig from you, and I can't connect these two things together. What do I do? You know, you answer the phone right away, you talk to them, you support them, and you, you fix their problems. You know, that's, uh, that to me is the critical piece. And, uh, you know, so we did that for, you know, for a year and then we had a full shop to support it as well i think you know i think everybody who used us even when we didn't have a full shop to support felt they were supported you know nobody was like wow chris we're really sorry we went this direction so i think that you know that that was great and then is you know the, the that that was the process christy lights has a builder that they bring in specifically and all the shops are built pretty much the same. So, you know, it's just based on how much space they have. And uh, so the shop builder came in and, you know, built the shop out. And, you know, it's basically a three-month process where they build the shop. I think one of the other critical pieces was a production electrician friend of mine, Mark Wolverton, who used to do a lot of tour stuff, uh, was looking to get back into the business and I thought it was very good to bring a New York production electrician in as the operations manager. You know, it, it immediately makes you know some of your clients feel more more secure. You know, Correct. you're supporting his brand; his his brand is supporting yours. Right, right. So you're you're just uh, you know you have a New York guy in there who gets the New York market and gets what the challenges are and understands how hard people work in New York and how hard they expect everyone else to be working with them to make their shows successful versus hiring somebody and then trying to train them from the ground up. So, you know, I think that that was a a huge piece of, you know, what happened. And now we've been going pretty much at full speed this whole year. Um, You know, technically the shop opened uh, a year ago, November. It's been great, you know. And a lot of people are putting their trust in us, and 
you know we're, we're making things happen for them what's what's some notable ones that you that you have that you've uh, handled uh, a little tiny gig called uh, the ball drop in, in Times Square so all the stages for the Times Square Association um, which is four stages and the ball drop itself so uh, that's sort of the that was a bit of a coup it's actually the largest largest audience to watch show because it's it's worldwide they have so many people who watch it uh, the NFL draft was it was a huge uh, piece you know we've now done that two years in a row now so we did it once from you know we did it once remotely and then we did it once uh, with uh, you know with the shop here in New York so those are sort of two big pieces and right now we're in the process of opening our Broadway shop too which is very exciting interesting and uh, we will have a a completely separate Broadway shop, and it'll just specialize in Broadway. Contracts are actually signed for that. We're in the process of uh, getting the building done now, which is very exciting. I'm super excited about that, of course, because I want to do more Broadway. But we're also doing a lot of film work. I think the Spider-Man 2 movie was was a huge piece of business that we got to work on. Um, we had over 500 LED PARs on that. They would call me up, like they started with 40 of them, and they built this pod that they had outdoors, because these are outdoor-rated PARs, and they just leave it outdoors, and they'd maneuver this pod around to do these different, to light these different areas with special effects. And by the end, they had, you know, 500 LED PARs on these pods, on cranes, that they were moving around the set to hit things from all different angles. And uh, it was very exciting. We uh, we also got to work on the movie Black Nativity. And uh, as far as I know, that was the first movie to use the Viper fixture. That was very exciting. And they they put uh, 40 Vipers in a very old church up on like 100 and like 41st Street. They did all the all the performances have. Uh, that take place in the church have vipers on them, which is very exciting. It has been great to see how much television and film is being shot in uh, New York these days. Yeah. And, you know, it looks like the, the mayor's office has been very serious about bringing in and retaining those yes. uh, those, those, those productions. Yes, and I, and I definitely hope that continues because I think it's, uh, you know, there's so many stars who already live here, and they're already big proponents of, you know, not wanting to go to other places. They want to work close to home. They want to go home at night you know, and go to home to their families and their houses. So I think, uh, you know, uh, hopefully that process will continue. And, uh, I mean, for us, it's, it's a huge amount of business, I think. Uh, you know, and pretty much every film nowadays is doing some type of LED, a very large dimming system, and, you know, uh, some some other type of theatrical component, you know. And I think uh, that that's great for business, you know. Have, you, have I, you have you had to do some education of the clients themselves in those cases to make them feel comfortable with definitely. LED sources, with, with arc sources, inside moving Correct. lights? Yeah. I've been, you know, I, I, I'm definitely a big proponent of, as I said before, education and training. You know, no matter whether you're the manufacturer, the dealer, 
you know, you got to get these people to see this stuff, put their hands on it, and understand how it works. Because nobody wants to feel uncomfortable with the products they're working with. So when you get people to try something new, you know, you, you have a big stake in its, its success. You know, you have a big, you know, uh, you're the one who said they should use this. <laughs> and, and I definitely like to show it to them because words will never fully describe what a product does as opposed to taking it out to them, turning it on, showing it to them, um, and really, you know, showing them what it can do, you know. The, uh, you know, without a shootout, you're not going to, you're not going to know, you know, especially when you're trying to com- get them to replace something that they've been using for years with a new product. So, uh, you know, it seems to me that you know, the way you handle these things is very, very relationship-based. Um, how do you, uh, yes. how, how did you develop those skills? How did, and how do you develop relationships? How do you, how do you maintain relationships? Well, to me, I consider them friendships, you know. I, you know, I, I'm definitely of the, you know, the mentality that people who are my clients are my friends. And, you know, I treat them as such. You know, I wouldn't let a friend down. I would, you know, when a friend's in need, whether it's my fault or their fault, they're still in need, you know. And, and you try to help them out as best you can. I would probably say that growing up in New York was, is, you know, a big piece of, you know, understanding relationships and understanding people. You know, I didn't go get to go ATV in or anything fun like that. <laughs> you know, we hung out with other people and we talked and we chatted and we sat in Cheap's Meadow and played musical instruments and, you know, people talked and hung out and, you know, not being shy was a, was a big, big piece of that. Um, I think definitely as a younger guy, I was pretty shy. Um, you know, I think understanding how people react and how they want to be treated is is sort of the key piece of that. Um, you know, I like to use uh, when I'm when I have people in my office with me. When you know the last two offices, when I was teaching the young guys as they come up, I would say, "Is that how you? You know, if it was a girl, is that how you treat your boyfriend?" Or to a you know to a guy, I'd say, is that how you treat your girlfriend? You know, you, you need to treat them in the way that they feel valued. So, what 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 are the rewards for someone that might want to enter, enter this side of the business, and how and how do they go about go about developing that sort of career? You know, let's let's say they're uh, well. I mean, there, there are lots of careers in the rental shop. You know, I definitely <laughs> I started in the shop. And I started driving trucks, and I started doing production stuff. You know, all those are different careers. I know guys who've been driving trucks, you know, for 20 years in this business. And, you know, they have a pretty good time, you know. So, I mean, that's definitely one career path. I know, you know, Christy Lights has had uh, employees for over 20 years who've worked in the shop for over 20 years. And I think that that's, you know, uh, another interesting you know, another interesting choice that you, you work in. You know, I'll never forget the day I walked in production arts. I met this guy, Tom Ferguson. You know, he was a really memorable guy. He ran the shop. That's what he did. He was awesome at it. And uh, that forever had an impression on me. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's what Tom's great at. 
I think, uh, you know, if you want to evolve into sort of the office end, I think, uh, I think first having some experience in the production side, on the rental side, you know, maybe a little design knowledge, that sort of, you know, a little bit of each thing uh, is a good recipe to understand, you know, who all your clients are going to be. It helps you speak the same language. Yeah, it, it definitely, you know. I mean, I, I think, you know, there are plenty of lighting designers today who call me up and say, Chris, this is what I'm doing. What product works good? Because in the past, I've been like, oh, try this new product. And luckily, every pretty much every product I've had them try, they've liked. So I have a good track record with them. I think that that is, you know, is a critical piece. You know, the the designers are so busy, they don't have time necessarily to get out and look at all the new gear. So they have to rely on the rental companies and the dealerships to really, you know, be proactive in showing them new gear, getting them new gear on their time frame in their, you know, in their world. You know, I spent uh, a week with Natasha Katz in a Broadway house showing her the new Viper. You know, they ended up specking a whole bunch of them on Aladdin. <laughs> and uh, but, but, but seeing it in the theater, seeing it in that environment, uh, to me, for a Broadway designer, is critical. You know, they don't want to put their reputation on some product that doesn't work or isn't going to work. That'll, that could damage their, you know, their livelihood. And it's worth mentioning uh, that, that you know these are that, that you that you realize the way to service people uh, at this level is that they need to see the equipment and they, they need to see it side by side with other equipment. Yeah. Because spec sheets only go so far. Well, that and yeah, I mean, different people meter things different ways. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to say anybody's right or anybody's wrong, but what people write down on paper isn't necessarily uh, gonna really tell you how it's going to look in a theater. Well, know? especially with LED, with the LED products, you know, yeah. CRI has proven to not really be a good gauge Correct. of the color rendering of an LED fixture. And I, mean, I know that there are a couple of different concepts about how to measure that now that uh, I know Philips is, uh, has some, some concepts about it themselves. But um, in the absence of sort of a standard, you just have to see it. Right. Right. You have to see it and then you have to be comfortable with it, you know. You know, or they're going to continue using the same products that they have, you know, been comfortable with. You know, I mean, I'll, you know, on Pippin, you know, it was a huge jump for, for Ken Posner to use the Vipers. You know, but once he used them, he loved them. I'm just going to gush for a second here. Pippin looked amazing. Everything about Pippin <laughs> is amazing. I truly love that show. I mean, the the lighting was fabulous, but everything else is fabulous too. Ken, Ken Posner's a fabulous lighting designer. <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, the guys who do Broadway all the time are there for a reason. They're very good at what they do. You know, Don Holder, Ken Posner, you know, Al Binkley. You know, all those guys are. You know, the list goes on, and the new guys coming up are, are doing some great stuff too. I mean, I, I'm we're, we're very excited to be working on various projects with everybody. And I, and I definitely think that supporting them with, you know, good gear and new gear and showing them the new products uh, makes their jobs exciting again, you know. I like when people get excited about new products because I'm excited about it, you know. And uh, I try to, you know, LDI, I, I try to convince them to come out, but they can't always come out, you know. 
You know, they have when they have a theater gig, <laughs> they can't hop out and fly to Vegas for the weekend. Yeah, it, the LDI trade show is fa- is fabulous, but you know, no matter when you hold it, there's always going to be a huge swath of people that simply can't make it because they can't yeah. just leave town and Correct. go to a trade show. Yeah. Uh, so, what can end users do to influence rental shops and influence manufacturers uh, so they can get the things that they need? Um, I think influence is about specifying number one. I think, you know, you put your influence down when you tell people what you need. Um, And I think that that definitely, you know, in the past people were like, well, I need this piece of gear. Okay, well, why do you need that piece of gear? What are you doing? What are you trying to accomplish? And, you know, the good rental shops and good rental managers are able to have that conversation and, you know, continue to, to, you know, to provide what the clients want. Um, and the more something rents, the more people are going to buy it. You know, I think when the Viper first came out, there was a complete hesitancy to move, you know, to move over from sort of what the standard was at the time. Everybody's like, okay, well, that's the standard. That's what I'm used to. That's what I like. That's, you know, I know what it looks like every time I turn it on. And, and it does the job well. So... Getting them to try a new product was not the easiest of things. Um, but once they see something new that they really do like, I think they gravitate towards it. But, but again, the, the, the influence on the, the shops to get what they, you know, to, to – I mean, the clients have two people they really they got to hit on. They got to hit the shop and tell them what they really want, and they got to hit the manufacturers and tell them what they really want. Um, I do think that there isn't enough connection between the cl- but, but between the what the clients are doing at the end of the day and the manufacturers. You know, the manufacturers need to come out and spend more time in theaters, in television studios, and see what people are trying to accomplish. You know, I you know when you're trying to sell a light that's super loud into a studio environment it's just not going to happen you know you could you could tell everybody how great the light output is but again if it's not a quiet light it's not going into studios it's not going into theaters you know and i i I think that the manufacturers have to spend more time with the designers in the space that they live in and uh, i think some of the manufacturers are starting to do more of that i think than i than i've seen in a while um, I definitely think Martin is very, you know, spending a lot of time really uh, in the West End and in, in the UK. Um, they've hired a guy who was a programmer and a lighting designer, which I think to me is, is a huge piece. I think more manufacturers need to hire lighting designers who have worked in the field to help them create better products. You know, I think that that is a, a missing piece. You know, it's like, well, okay, so who's the lighting designer here at the manufacturing company? You know, what have they designed? You know, what pieces, um, you know, are they able, you know, the the lighting designers are going to bring what they need and the manufacturers should make it. (laughs) 
you know, that's definitely how I feel about it. Although, of course, manufacturers can sometimes come up with concepts that we never realized we needed. This is true, too. This is true, too. And they should sort of continue on that creativity. Um, you know, I think chief technology officers and that's those type of, you know, highly creative people are great, you know. And, yes, they can come up with things that, you know, that they might not know. You know, they didn't know they needed <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a, I mean, I don't know how many people, you know, specifically said, well, what I really want is a beam projector in a, in a moving yoke. Right. But, you know, then, look, you know, someone made it. Right. And now everyone wants them. Yes. Yes, I definitely. But there was a period in theater where beam projectors were on every single show. Oh, well, don't get me wrong. I love beam projectors, <laughs> but I love beam projectors, but I love, uh, you know, I mean, I, I obviously I was talking about the Sharpie, you know, which has yeah. a very, very hard-edged thing. Um, the the traditional theatrical beam projector is a fixture that I really, really miss, and it had that, it had this quality of light that was, you know, it was unlike a Fresnel and unlike a reflector spotlight and unlike a PAR, and it was such its own thing. And I do kind of miss that. Well, I mean, they were on every single thing. And I've actually seen more requests for them. And, you know, nowadays I say, do you want a Sharpie? Because <laughs> you know, like, nobody, you know, no conventional uh, manufacturer is making a beam projector anymore. You know, Wybrun was the last one, you know, who seemed to really listen to the theater and, and make something right away for it. So, so you mentioned Wybrun. You know, is, is there a danger in listening too closely to your audience and believing everything they say? Well, yeah, yeah. You definitely have to. You, you, you're gonna have to figure out the viability of whatever the concept is. You know, the, I, I, you know, you can't spend thousands of dollars on research and not have a way to recoup the money. I think when you explain that to designers, they're very clear and they understand that, you know. But I think a lot of designers want, like, one or two extra features in a moving light and really might not use one feature at all. When you have color mixing in a moving light, how often are you using the solid color wheel? Well, speaking just from personal yeah, yeah. experience all the time. Okay. So, um, so, so you find that is, is a critical item. Somebody else might not. You know, and it would be it'd, it'd be smart of the manufacturers to know that, like how you know it, in in what areas is this piece of the product critical, and which which areas is it not? You know, I have some like designers who tell me I'd rather all gobos in that wheel. I'd rather have an extra gobo wheel than those solid colors. I mix my colors, you know, but it's you know. Of course, there's going to be both sides, but you got to count that up and figure out what that is. You know, get those, you know. You know, I'd like to see the surveys from these moving light companies like, you know, what's your favorite feature? Rate them, you know, 1 to 10. You know, and give each one a value, you know. Is this a critical item or is this not a critical item? You know, rotating prisms, you know. For some people, they're completely critical. Other people never use them. So what do you, so what do you see as being next? For the the equipment rental business, uh, what, what, do, what do you think? What do you think is going to happen? What do I think is next for the equipment rental business? Well, I, I definitely think the LEDs save the equipment rental business. You know, I think the LED progression uh, was very good for the rental business, and I think that uh, 
you know, LEDs can continue to be a, a good piece for the for the rental business. Um, I think one of the critical things for the rental business is that the manufacturers don't make too many new things at one time, though. Because when they make too many things in a row at one time, it dilutes the market. And, uh, you know, it's like, well, I don't want the, you know, I don't want the 2.1 version. I want the 2.3 version. Well, the 2.1 version's only been out for six months. <laughs> you know, why is there already a 2.3 version? You know, it's one thing when it's software and you can just update it. Uh, it's another thing when, you know, rental companies have invested a huge amount of money into a product and have an expectation that it's going to have a certain life. Um, and again, that to me is manufacturers working closely with dealers. Like, okay, well, if we have a $7,000 light, how long do you need it to live to, you know, to, to make your nugget? You know, I think everybody in the business should be more conscious and you need a certain amount of money to live. I need a certain amount of money to live. You know, we all need, you know, this certain thing. Let's work together to sort of find a more happy medium. You know, I definitely think that rental companies, you know, the, the LED piece will continue is, is a big piece. Um, I definitely don't, you know, I'm hoping that the manufacturers and the rental companies start going back to miniaturizing stuff a bit. And I think that that could be, you know, really the next piece is greener, smaller, quieter, quicker. As we were saying earlier, not every fixture needs to be 75 or 100 pounds. <laughs> right. There is a market for small fixtures. Right, right. And, and, and I think Clay Packy did a great job of, you know, the, you know, with the Sharpie and the Sharpie wash, of coming out with a smaller fixture and showing that it could be very successful. I mean, the Sharpie train just keeps on rolling. <laughs> it really does. You know, and, I, and, and, and now the Viper train is rolling. You know, the, the, you know, the Viper wasn't a product people were asking for. They already had a product in that location. But that product was 15 years old. So just by updating the technology, just by making it smaller, faster, lighter, more efficient, and refining it a bit, we now have another super popular fixture. I can't keep Vipers on the shelf. They go so quick. You know, and, and the, you know, the Aura, again, you know, that was, you know, another huge success story. And uh, the aura, I definitely think, came out of Martin listening to clients, though, saying we want a small wash fixture that's light, super efficient, and has a zoom. <laughs> you know? And they're like, oh, we can make that. And okay. There you go. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, I think we're coming towards the end here. Okay. Uh, but how can, pe- how can people reach out to you and how, how can people reach out to Christy? My information's uh, highly available online at christylights.com. Uh, you can click on the New York shop, and my name will come up. Um, you can also find me on my LinkedIn page uh, under Chris McMean. Uh, you can find me on my Facebook page under Chris McMean. Both of those pages have all my contact info as well as my cell phone number. And uh, those are, you know, cell phone and email are the two best ways to get in touch with me. Okay. And uh, finally, just do you have any thoughts for someone who's coming out of school, whatever level they're coming out at, at or entering the business, uh, looking at 
sort of whatever career, whether it's rental shops, uh, going into production, going into design, what what would you tell them? What, what, what I, advice I would say find them? what you enjoy. I mean, if you if you really enjoy being hands on and and doing stuff, uh, you're going to excel in the production end of the business. Um, if you really enjoy talking with people and spending time with them, and you know, uh, then you know you you might make a great rental agent. Um, you know, they call us rental agents, but I never really think of us as rental agents. I consider us like almost more of a consultant. You know, you know, you guys, uh, designers or you know, tour managers, they come to us with a, with a problem. We solve the problem. You know, and I think that that you know, if if you enjoy that aspect of it, you know, you probably want to go into the rental market. So, so people can think of their their rental agents as something other than someone that takes their equipment list and enters it into the computer. Yes, that they can help them solve problems. Yes, very much. And 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 if you take the time to explain to people what you're doing, uh, they want to help you. You know, I mean, pretty much, at least the majority of the rental guys I know who've been in the business for a long time, they were lighting designers at one point. They were production staff at one point. You know. They, they, they have a background, and they deal with gear all day long and can help you with the gear piece, you know. And if you say, hey, look, I need this piece, but I'm not sure what goes in between that piece and that piece, you know, they'll, 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 they'll tell you, you know, I, I'd like to use an aura, but, you know, uh, I'm scared it's going to, you know, blind the audience coming out the side. Well, there's a top hat, you know. But they're not going to mention that if you just send a list in. If you if you don't have a conversation and uh, spend the time to really explain what you're doing to them. Thanks very much, Chris. It was fabulous to have you here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, hope you have a good afternoon. Great. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Thank you to Chris McMean. Remember to check out ChristyLights.com. Don't forget to visit us at CastingLightPodcast.com on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook. I'm your host, Jason Barron. Thanks for joining us, and have a good show.